back to Judging Book Covers Podcast, a bi-weekly book club podcast, where Stephanie and I bring on a guest to read through a book that they have bought and have yet to read. Uh, this week, we are joined by Phil Gonzalez. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Much better than I was doing earlier this week. <laughs> you definitely sound night and day. Yes. <laughs> um, you chose the book Universal Harvester by... John Darniel, and I'm assuming that's how you pronounce the last name? Darniel. Darniel. Okay. Yes. How did this book come up on your radar? Well, John Darniel is the uh, lead singer and songwriter of The Mountain Goats, which is a band that I've listened to for many years. And he published his first novel a few years ago, Wolf in White Van. And I knew going into that one that he was, he was exploring kind of the horror of uh, – just the horror of humanity, of being a person, and the novel just blew me away. But I felt it was a little incomplete, and so when he announced uh, he was going to be publishing another one, I was really looking forward to it because I know that as an artist, he's constantly improving, he's constantly refining his uh, his aesthetic, his abilities, his sensibilities, his outlook, and uh, I had been just itching to pick this up, and then of course I picked it up, and then of course I didn't read it, and I didn't read it, and I didn't read it, <laughs> until this came along. Well, the good news is at least you're not years and years and years away. It did only just come out last February. Right, right. Um, thankfully, and surprisingly, did not have a long hold list at my library. I don't know how yours was, Stephanie. Well, mine was fine. Um, it was at it wasn't at the one in my town, but it was the next town over. So okay, no good. problem. Yeah, good. Um, so yeah, this book was written in night. God, I did that yesterday too. <laughs> <laughs> this book was written in 2017. It is a very hard book to summarize, mm-hmm. so I'm just going to go with the Goodreads one before we kind of jump into everything, um, because how it is marketed is very different from what the book actually is. Uh, Life in a small town takes a dark turn when a mysterious footage begins appearing on VHS cassettes at local video huts. Jeremy works at a counter in the video hut in Nevada. Uh, Iowa. It is a small town. The first A in the name is pronounced as A. Smack in the center of the state. This is the late 1990s, pre-DVD. And Hollywood videos and Ames poses an existential threat to Video Hut. But there are regular customers, a predictable rush in the late afternoon. It's good enough for Jeremy. It's a job. It's a quiet regular. And he gets to watch movies. He likes the owner, Sarah Jane. It gets him out of the house where he and his dad try to avoid missing mom who died six years ago in a car crash. But when Stephanie Parsons, a local school teacher, comes in to return her copy of Targets, an old movie, one Jeremy himself had ordered for the store, she has an odd complaint. There's something on it, she says, but doesn't elaborate. Two days later, uh, another guest brings back She's All That, a new release, and complains that there's something wrong with it. There's another movie on the tape. So Jeremy takes a look, and indeed, in the middle of the movie, the screen blinks dark for a moment, and She's All That is replaced by a black and white scene shot in a barn with only the faint sounds of someone breathing. Four minutes later, She's All That is back. I'm going to stop it there. Because <laughs> that's about as much as I read before going, this book sounds great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it had me at She's All That, if I'm being honest. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this book is portrayed as more of a almost ring-esque horror movie or horror book, um, which is not what it turns out to be at all. 
Um, I made a few notes, but I'm not entirely sure where to start with this one. <laughs> That's it's funny because that is a recurring theme in every <laughs> review and every and every blog post that's been made about Universal Harvester. It's here's what the book's about, but it's not really what the book's about, and I don't know how to talk about it. And no no amount of spoilers are going to spoil the book for you. No, not at all. Like we could tell you everything that happens in this book, and it still doesn't give the atmospheric horror turned anguish right that kind of builds in this book um we do have three different distinct time periods Mm -hmm. Uh, the first third of the book takes place in the 90s then we jump back to the 70s come back to the 90s briefly before going to more of a present day at least where iphones exist um maybe among like the first generation of iphones because it does appear that Wi-Fi is still a bit new. Yeah, and it's the death of the uh, the death of the photo booth. Yes, right. yes. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I I wrote down a list of characters. I wrote down the time periods, and I wrote down how I'm trying to classify this book. Uh-huh. And it is <laughs> very interesting. But uh, how did you guys feel about it? We'll start there. Uh, Phil, do you want to use? Do you want to start since it was your pick? Sure. Uh, I mean, how do you how do you mean? How did I feel about it? Well, did you enjoy the book? Is it what you were expecting? Are you disappointed? Um... Uh, having having read his previous novel, it was essentially what I was expecting, which was a book that starts off with a very strong premise that then he kind of wanders not away from, but that he you realize he's going after something a lot broader than the central conceit of the novel. And there's a mystery at the heart of it. And then you realize the mystery is only, is only there because you're not aware of what else surrounds this huge mystery that life and the world are so much more vast than this conundrum and that the people's lives in the in the book are actually more influenced by the 99% of everything else in their lives than by this <laughs> this very focused mystery and reading it i was frustrated and and lost and at times angered and by the end of it i felt i was like i don't get what just happened <laughs> so in the subsequent two other times i read it since i finished it because oh, wow. I kept going back and was like, okay, I'm doing this again. I'm doing this again. I realized that the he was slowly drawing us into this sense of you're going to sort of live in the grief of all these characters. And I'm not going to make it explicit. But by the end of this, you're going to be left kind of just with a dark feeling as opposed to an answer to a mystery. And so I think I was completely – once I realized – it wasn't about solving a mystery. I, I, I felt a lot more uh, at peace with what he had presented to me. That's a, yeah, I'm good with that. Uh, Stephanie, how'd you feel? Um, I, well, first, I really wish I had had time to do a second read through. It's definitely something I want to read again, just to kind of go back and, you know, hindsight 2020, that whole thing, just to... <laughs> start from the beginning knowing what's going to happen in the middle and towards the end since the time jump happens, you know. Um, I 
wrote down the word dread because there were a few times where I just had this huge sense of dread. Like, I don't want to turn the page. Please stop doing what you're doing. <laughs> Sarah Jane, please stop going to this house by yourself and not yes. telling anyone where you're going. <laughs> Um, but there was just, and then li- very little things that were written in, um, by the narrator, um, mm-hmm. that left me with a sense of dread. Yeah. Um, and then it did event then just kind of turn into confusion and then some frustration. <laughs> Cause I was also frustrated with Sarah Jane for her choice to do that without <laughs> telling anyone. Um, and then just grief, really heavy grief, um, so I think kind of like you said, uh, Phil, like kind of going back, knowing that it's not necessarily to solve this mystery. I would like to read it again with having that mindset. Um, but I did. I did enjoy it overall. Yeah. Yeah. I finished it and put it aside and went, I don't know what the hell I just read. <laughs> yeah. And knew I liked it and knew that I would probably love it because it reminds me of all the things that. I have finished and thought I got to unpack what I just read. But once I do, I know I'll be okay. And as I was making notes this morning, um, I finished it a couple days ago. The more I thought about it, the more I loved it. Mm. Um, The trying to classify what kind of book this was, was a lot of fun. Um, And it, both reminded me of the mysteries that I tried to create as a kid that I look back on as now and like there was no mystery there like the crazy woman that lived three houses down was not a scary witch right. <laughs> as much as I wanted her to be um, and yet also the feeling of being in those mysteries as a child I don't know that's what this book reminded me of most of all um knowing that everybody was okay Mm. was kind of it it reminded me of a lot of postmodern books that i've read where you get glimpses of like how this is going to end and it no longer matters about the ending it is entirely about the journey and the kind of meta side of like by the way this is still a book (laughs) yeah so knowing all that i really really enjoyed it um but I was at first angry because I was like, man, I was really hoping for a horror book. Here. <laughs> <laughs> and from the sense of like these videos would turn into, I kept hoping that Lisa was a new cult leader. Oh. And I think I am more satisfied with her being just a broken adult. Mm. Yeah. So. I will say there was one point where I said to my husband, I don't know if I like this book. I don't, and, it, and then the next thing I said was, I don't know what's going on. Like, I think it was because I just couldn't quite tell. I had the sense of, you know, those, those feelings of dread. Um, but it then wasn't going into that horror movie, Sarah Jane never came back or, you know, a body right. was found over here type of thing. Because I also had a feeling of dread just because, you know, I was expecting that, you know. Yes, exactly. Um, which I, looking back, there was... That feeling of dread was very well created by the author, I think. <laughs> very he, well done. He does an amazing thing of building dread in this book because, A, we know what to expect. We know that this is a horror novel we're reading. So mm-hmm. it starts out, all this mysterious, disturbing footage is showing up. Disturbing, but in a really nebulous way, footage is showing up. Uh, like, you don't really know why it's 
upsetting, but it is upsetting. Like something's right. happening to people, but is it voluntary? Like it seems voluntary. It seems choreographed. Right. Like what's going on? Right. The real moment. There's a there's a few moments of of absolute existential terror in this book for me, which was the first time the first person narration creeps in unexpectedly. You suddenly realize that the narrator is not your omniscient narrator. It's a, it's a person. It just, they drop an eye. Like Mm -hmm. they say like the first time I noticed this and you're like, Oh no, what? And then (laughs) the very few times he makes reference to some sort of investigation that took place Mm-hmm. Much later, he's like, no one ever, none of the investigators ever saw this journal entry. Yes. And you're like, whoa, 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 what? And I was trying to describe <laughs> Right. And I was trying to describe it to someone as imagine you, re- you were reading a Babysitter's Club novel, like <laughs> any Babysitter's Club novel. And the, 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 the dialogue, the, the narration is exactly the say it's the one where Claudia breaks her leg because some kid pulls a practical joke. Just it's a straightforward Babysitter's Club novel. But at the beginning of chapter six, the narration suddenly says, several years later, homicide investigators weren't able to piece together this afternoon. And then the rest of the novel just went on the rest of the way. And you're like, wait, I know that something horrible happens at some point or something happens. But and he never lets you in on that aspect of the plot. Like, you know, there's more. And but as he sort of lets you realize that that's none of your business, like at the end of the day, you're not Mm -hmm. supposed to worry about that. Go about the rest of your life. Do we figure out who the narrator is? It's Lisa, isn't it? I, that's what I thought, but yeah. then after reading a couple of reviews, I was like, "Am I wrong?" Because nobody else is talking about how it's Lisa, right? But that has how it felt in that last section. Yeah, she's holding. Yeah. She says she was holding the camera at one point, right? Mm-hmm. But as um, it was going for a second, I kind of had moments of, "Is the narrator changing?" I can't remember what was said, but it just made me wonder for there are a couple half times, a yeah, yeah, yeah. which of course changed, and of course, how could she know what was really going on in a lot of these places? If right. she's the name, like, it's that really weird, like, are you making me, are you expecting me to question the reality of some of this? Like, <laughs> is she building this narrative based solely on the testimony of, of Jeremy? Like, yeah, it's just, it's, it's mind boggling. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I want to talk about the, the video splicing for a minute. Um, it reminded me of, I don't know if you've seen the movie Persona from the 60s, or mm-hmm. I guess more recently would be like the Dexter intro of all these like flashes of random things that like juxtaposition together. It, it's built to make you feel uncomfortable, but it's like a ham steak frying in a pan, orange juice pouring, putting on shoes. But when you splice it all together, it's meant to be uncomfortable. Persona was more of like a human eye and, oh God, it's been years since I've seen Persona. Um, apparently that's the only part. <laughs> <laughs> The introduction of Persona is very odd, um, but when I, because at first I thought of it as more of like a ring, but I never felt like someone was going to come out of the movie, um, more of like, I guess, found footage. But when I started to think of it more, I guess, after Sarah Jane kind of moves in with Lisa, uh-huh. um, that's kind of the attitude it took on more. Um, I don't know what was being accomplished from the staged stuff more so. I know the found footage of like the streets and things like that made more sense to me than like 
putting a bag on someone's head and having them sit in a chair or right. do yoga poses, for lack of a better <laughs> way of putting it. Or people writhing under a tarp. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I forgot about that one. Yeah, that... And there's apparently some footage they don't describe from oh, yeah. earlier on. It's like everyone who saw it was upset by it. Let's just keep moving on. Right. Yeah. It's that bad that we're not going to even tell you what it was. Right. In this horror novel. Yeah. <laughs> he does have a fascinating way of making, giving just enough detail that you can feel this atmosphere and um, dread, as you said, Stephanie, without like. <laughs> Telling people you should feel that way. Mm-hmm. Such a wonderful line to walk across. And because so many authors are like, you should feel dread. And and it never felt like that reading this. It's been a while since I've had a horror novel do that. It was kind of great. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I also like the the random clips of if another decision had been made, this is where Jeremy would be. Um, or Lisa or Stephanie, you know, in another lifetime, Jeremy would have taken a job before this all happened kind of thing. That mindset was kind of cool. That just added to my dread, though. (laughs) Exactly, yes. (laughs) Because they didn't do this, they're all going to die. Right. Right. (laughs) Worst case scenario. (laughs) One thing thing that Darnell said uh, in an interview about this book was he was trying to capture the feeling of when you get – uh, a voicemail by a wrong number and it's <laughs> and it's someone who's angry and is just like I told you to call me back and he's like he'll get he would get these and just stay up all night like thinking about what happened like why was this person angry who is this person trying to connect with and it's a mystery you're never going to full you're never going to know but it's this little injection into your life of of someone else's extreme emotion that you're not a part of and that's like this very frustrating but very like personal glimpse into the horror of someone else's life and that's kind of one of the feelings he was trying to evoke from this this whole novel i definitely think he achieved it (laughs) i think so i once got a voicemail from a doctor's office calling someone to set up um a test or something oh, no. so i called them back it's like you have the wrong number yeah. <laughs> you know i let them know but then it's like oh gosh i hope that they get to this person that the person goes and that their test goes well that everything turns out fine. <laughs> yeah, no kidding <laughs> so i've had my cell phone number now for 16 years i think but when i first got it it was definitely someone who did quite nefarious things like probably sold drugs so I'm like this 14, 15 year old kid being like, why are you, you have the wrong number. And they're like yelling at me that, you know, we know this is so-and-so's number. You put them on. And I'm like, okay, bye. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. so, thankfully I haven't gotten those calls in probably 10 years, oh, that's but good. it took a while. <laughs> I was... And now I don't pick up numbers. I don't know. So <laughs> I came home once to a court summons for the person who lived at our apartment before oh, no. us. But we had been there for almost a year at that point. Um, And at that point in time, I was working in child support and I would serve people with court papers. So our process was we had to confirm the address with the post office. So I was like, this law office did not do their due diligence because (laughs) whatever does not live here. (laughs) So I called them because, you know, if you don't appear in court, it may not go your way. But I don't know if they – and then I was worried. Like, I hope that they actually, you know – 
did what they're supposed to do in trying to find his new address. I also called our landlord to say, hey, can you tell these people that this we got this court summons? They may want to call this attorney's office. Oh, no. Yeah. So then again, I was worried about them. <laughs> yeah, I came home once at my old place, a duplex I lived in, and uh, the door had been kicked in. And so oh, I and, and nothing had been taken. So I called the cops and they came and investigated and they were like, oh, well, what probably happened is they were looking for the people who used to live here. So don't worry about it. You can just get a your the, my landlord built like a more secure front door and uh, nothing like that ever happened again. But I was always like, who used to live here? Right. And why was someone kicking in the front? Because it was literally like kicked in. Oh, why was geez. somebody kicking in the front door not to steal something? Because like I had like valuable things like just sitting there. And, uh, for, you know, I, every once in a while, I'm like, I hope whoever that was didn't find the person they were looking for. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> that meeting probably wouldn't have gone so well. No. <laughs> so before we learned about Irene um, and more about Lisa, what did you guys think was going on? Hmm. I mean, I was still feeling that it was uh, it, not a slasher movie per se, but like we were still in the vibe of a cult gone bad or someone kidnapped well by that point sarah jane had moved in so i was starting to feel more that line of like some kind of a cult but definitely getting away from like the supernatural feeling um i guess before we started to learn about irene were you still in the this is very horrific or Um, less horror i think i was because part one towards the end of it um, Jeremy, his dad, and a woman that his dad is seeing are watching a movie. And, of course, the screen changes, and it's someone else running away. And Jeremy's dad, Steve, says that it was his wife, Jeremy's mom, who had passed away. So I went to a place of, oh, my God, what if that car accident she died in was staged, if she was really killed at this house, and they staged this car accident? So I was still in the horror mindset by the time we started learning about Irene. Oh, geez, especially considering that Ezra had crashed his yep. car by that point. Yes. <laughs> and that section ends with the with the horrific car crash of Ezra, whose right. car is full of videotapes and who wasn't yeah. supposed to be there anyway. Yeah. So the assumption is that Ezra did meet Lisa at some point, right? Like... Thinks. I think maybe she had him come and take the tapes and he was supposed to put just put them back. Like that, not that he was involved with the splicing or anything. Okay. Right. I got the feeling that like was Sarah was like, can you meet me here? Pick up these tapes so yeah. we can put them back in the store. Right. But we right. never really do find out. Yeah. No, we do find out that Ezra is OK, yes. which is good. Um, as OK as he can be expected to be. Right. Yeah. I mean, he's still walks running a. Still works with a, a limp. He's working a convenience store yeah. in a college town. So bad scar. Yeah, on his arm. you're right. He's not great, but he's alive. Yeah, which is better than the alternative. That right? is very true. <laughs> then we take a deep dive into the 1970s, which is where I was when uh, you and I talked earlier this week, Phil. Like, yes. I don't know what's going on, but we just changed <laughs> time periods <laughs> to learn about uh, Irene and her husband, whose name I didn't write down. Um, Peter. Yeah. Peter, thank you. Yeah. And their courtship and when they had Lisa. And we learn a lot of small towns in Iowa. Mm-hmm. And kind of the small town field. Now, are either of you from a small town originally? 
No, I'm from suburban Texas, which is okay. a city in and of itself. So, yeah, uh, city in Massachusetts. <laughs> yeah. I'm from a, a what I thought was a small town, but it's nowhere near this small. Um, I'm from outside of Memphis, mm. but being so close to Memphis, it's all kind of almost like being in a suburb without the nice suburban perks. Right. <laughs> um, but. I don't know. I I'm originally from Arkansas, so there was a lot of not the winter side, but the the atmospheric emptiness and like you can drive for miles and miles and miles and see nothing. Yeah, um, I I loved getting sucked back into that. Um, yeah, I live to cornfields in my life. I live in the Midwest. I live in, in oh, Mi- that's right <laughs> in Minnesota, and uh, so I'm just north of 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 Iowa, and I've been through Iowa several times, and it is. Very, I mean, there is that sense of anything could be happening out here. Mm-hmm. Um, you like, I loved his description of farmhouses yes. uh, about how there are these things you see on the side of the road and you don't really think about the lives going on in them and you don't go to them unless you absolutely have to, unless you live there or you're visiting or you get sent there for some reason. Otherwise they're just these monoliths on the side of the, on the side of the road. And I've been to many farmhouses because my job takes me there and it is this other world. It's this very extremely isolated way of living. Uh, and th- th- you, you get the sense that the people, the families who live there are very invested in, in taking care of each other and, and living their lives in a very secure environment. I agree. Yeah. I grew up um, in a city, so I liked the descriptions like you were saying, of the farmhouses and also the cornfield. The description of the cornfield mm. was that one of those first pangs of dread where <laughs> be standing, because he's made a point to write, you could be standing in a cornfield and yell, help, or where are you taking me? And someone a few rows over may not hear you. Yep. Um, yes. <laughs> I think that's... Um, I think that's why certain horror movies or you know books where it's set in places like this works so well on me because I didn't grow up I'm like my neighbor was right there I could get somewhere else so watching a movie or reading a book where the nearest house is half a mile away I'm like what, what are you supposed to do <laughs> <laughs> not yeah, that we, half a mile is that far but <laughs> right we uh, used to torture my poor sisters um we live my dad's house is actually still on a highway and there's like a small one road neighborhood near it now um but it's like mostly surrounded by cotton fields so in our wonderful youth i have um i'm one of eight so just to put that out there that's the i'm second oldest so the two oldest of us to entertain ourselves would do things like tell our younger siblings that someone had escaped from the police station (laughs) (laughs) no idea actually where the police station is in relation to our house but of course that means that they're wandering up and down the highway and and just playing into that so thinking of more cornfields and cornfields but still like this whole isolation thing it was i don't know i loved all of it so much (laughs) (laughs) um but it is i totally forgot that there used to be those phone boxes on highways um all right for calling in accidents and things like that because even like the earliest memories I have of seeing car accidents, someone had a cell phone. So I'm young. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I don't know. The 1970s story is a bit of a different 
horror, but I think it still is in a sense. Um, and it's another one that doesn't get resolved because we never really learn what happens with Irene. No. Um, the garbage who, eaters. Yeah. Yeah. She, she joins essentially a cult, um, not in a cult in the sense of what you think of nowadays, but a very, I don't know how to describe it. Um, it's a scarier cult in my opinion, but not still one that you're like, they're going to all go drink Kool-Aid, but probably just above that. Cause like they're going to wait out the end of the world. And all I can think of is what if the end of the world doesn't come soon. Right. And you've also chose to leave your husband and your child. Oh, I God, mean, yeah. you wouldn't want to wait out the rest of the world. Not that it would have been good for her to try to convince them to join the cult. Right. But <laughs> right. I was just thinking, if you're going to wait out the end of the world, wouldn't you want to do it with your husband and your child? Well, it's interesting because so there, it's a cult that's centered around, uh, what's his name, uh, Michael, Michael Christopher. Michael. Yeah. Who's this charismatic, like preacher, uh, this apocalyptic preacher, who lives? Assuming I assume he lives homeless, uh, and the followers only eat food that has been discarded. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so she starts. Irene starts collecting scrap. She stops eating at home and she starts collecting their garbage, their scraps, and bringing it in a pail to feed the the congregants. And there's something so unnerving and real and visceral about that very specific detail uh, of what kind of cult this is. Like it seems I've never heard of this happening, but it seems like something that could happen. Like it's so animalistic, but also like penitent, but also uh, just like sort of this like return to poverty that you can see where this originated with a good idea and then slowly turned into this terrible thing and then, of course, they pick up, you know, they, they pull up stakes and they move every once in a while and she disappears with them. And somehow the piecing together of these videotapes is Lisa's attempt to not find her mother, but pay tribute to her mother, like put her mother's mystery out into the public or make other people complicit in in her goal or in her in her loneliness or in her despair like it's hard to sort of I don't think there's a pat answer to it no because the other half I took of it was that she also hoped that her mother would find these and realize it's her and and not necessarily find her but glimpse into a part of her life that she missed almost yeah um or the mindset that she missed because I mean Lisa essentially when her mother leaves loses her childhood in a sense she becomes the thing that tags along while her father tries to find his wife yeah um and when that's all you know what are you gonna do i mean she there's discussion of how she never puts down roots and then finally gets the glimpse that maybe she can i Mm -hmm. think they've been there for in a place for about a year and starts actually making friends and then suddenly they someone swears they saw her mom um it's just i still don't know how i feel about lisa like it's a very apprehensive feeling of sympathy but also i still don't get what you were doing with you know people like sarah jane right Um, well it's interesting how he he parallels 
Lisa with Jeremy because Jeremy too lost his mother and we see the two different ways these families went mm-hmm. with Lisa with was Lisa's father's name uh Peter 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 taking this extreme form of desperate searching to recover his missing wife uh, in a way that shatters his relationship with his daughter and uh, damages her for the rest of her life, as opposed to uh, Steve Helt, who he and Jeremy instead, they they pull in and hold on to each other and form this almost impenetrable bond uh, that that's so strong that it won't allow them to escape this house that they live in. Uh, but whereas that kind of makes Jeremy, it, it makes him inactive to a fault, but it also gives him far more grounding, but it, it get, allows him to sort of loop around the other side and find a connection with Lisa at the end that we're not a let in on, but that he seems to understand her in a really strange way. Right. Like when they leave, when they, there's not a confrontation, but when him and Stephanie go to the farmhouse and then they leave, Stephanie's very upset. She wants to call the police right away. And Jeremy says not to. Um, and that um, he knows, I think he said that he knows Stephanie won't get it the way he does, but he does ask her, you know, how would you feel if it were you? Kind of thing. Like, try to put yourself in her shoes. Um, so he does come to understand her a little bit at least, you know, um, with some sympathy. Mm-hmm. Um even though his mom, you know, didn't choose to leave. Yeah. It's interesting the reaction these people have to Lisa, because I assume we're never explicitly told what she does, but I assume she just kind of explains her story or her process. And then there are the people that get obsessed with wanting to help her, like Sarah Jane. And then I feel like the other reaction most of the time is, Stephanie's reaction, which is get the hell away mm. and and find help. There is a moment where they say that Jeremy probably would have fallen under the obsessive side if he hadn't lost his mother, um, which I really liked because I still thought it was some kind of cult that was happening um, and that he had like was able to avoid the brainwash was almost kind of how it was put. Mm-hmm. Um, but... I don't. I don't know. I, he still would have been justified to call the cops. I think she slaps the shit out of him, in on video. Right. <laughs> so uh, to the point that the family in the present, Row, the yeah, family <laughs> that that bought the farmhouse finds all these videos and gets this. Um, I don't want to say obsessive because it's, obsessive implies unhealthy, but they start. Wanting to make sure Jeremy's okay more than anything. Yeah. Um, and almost not really wanting to purify their house. They just kind of want to see if this mystery has been solved. Um, they're also where we get a lot of the exposition of what can be explained. Right. What's going on, which is still like, I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> right, the Pratt family. Yes. Yeah. Who were from West Covina, which, which made I me loved. laugh. Yes. yes. <laughs> uh, Phil, are you a crazy ex-girlfriend fan? I am not. Okay. <sighs> that is apparently the dream town in yes. all of the U.S. <laughs> and I can't read the words West Covina without hearing Rachel Bloom singing it. <laughs> yep. Same here. Well, of course, um, ma- leading me to wonder, uh, I mean, Darniel is not 
ignorant of popular culture, obviously, leading me to wonder how how much of that is is intentional. <laughs> like if he's if if there's a, a feeling you're supposed to get from him naming West Covina as the <laughs> as as the origin of this family. I am curious because the way that West Covina is portrayed in Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, it is the perfect, you know, town slash city where it's always sunny and the perfect temperature and everything good supposed to happen. Yeah. And uh, as opposed to Nevada, which has seasons and this oppressive feeling in the winter of not leaving your house. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> so it could be because I don't know anything about West Covina before crazy ex-girlfriend well, and Darnell is, you know, he's a, he's a California native. Oh, okay. Um, um, and he, so he's a California native, uh, and he lived in, uh, Colo, uh, Iowa, which is just to the East of Nevada. Um, okay. he lived in Colo, Iowa with his wife, who's from Iowa for two years. And that's what kind of inspired him to write this, uh, this book. But, his music is so steeped in California, not mythology, but just it is such a cal- he is such a California writer uh, that I th- there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that choosing West Covina was an intentional choice, uh, b- just just because it it must mean something to people, right? At the very least, to him. Yeah, and it is very and, and it is very opposite of Iowa. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Anything California, which I don't know a part of California, even though I know that the North Park gets seasons and it's supposed to get cold and everything up there. But it always is such a sunny state. And unlike Florida, which I think is actually the sunny state. Um, (laughs) But yeah, it's supposed to be this outsider family that is brought in to kind of show how the times have changed, um, which we did see some during jeremy's time um but even more so you know the box stores are coming up wi-fi is a thing um how this small town has kind of colin still i think is small nevada seems to be a little bit bigger in the present day Um, just a little bit though yeah like it's kind of trying to play its small town charm to bring more people in right rather than just be a small town um, and let's say everybody's older, but nobody's really young in this book. But, uh, I guess the difference between Jeremy at 22 and I believe the son's name is James. Yes. Uh, who's roughly the same age mm-hmm. and yet have very different mentalities. Jeremy felt a lot older and like he should be doing something with his life as where James is in college and. You know, even though it's, I think, about to be a senior year, it's still not this. There's never a moment of like he's got to get ready to accomplish something. Right. Well, yeah. And one thing he does really well with these characters when he brings in the Pratts is, <clears throat> I, and this is just one thing I love about Darnell's writing, is even though they are they are outsiders and they haven't experienced what Jeremy and his father have experienced with the death of the mother, they haven't experienced what. Uh, what Lisa's experienced with like the the, the, the dissolving of her family, uh, even though the Pratts are very much a stable, loving, uh, very put well put together family with the, everything's planned out. The kids are smart. They're they're funny. And I just love like they they're jocular. And 
he still validates the fact that they are experiencing a a devastating form of loss as well, which is brought on by the simple fact that the kids are growing up. Mm-hmm. And the, there's these moments where the parents will just stop and observe the fact that their children are adults now. And you're like, and he's able to frame it in such a way that it doesn't seem saccharine, but he's making the point that loss and grief is, it, 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 it's unavoidable. Like, even if it's natural and it's supposed to happen and you're happy to see this loss occur, it's still hard. And these families are all going through this deep separation and this deep trauma that's simply brought on by the fact that they're alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there was also the part where when Abby and James first get to the house and see the parents um, that Abby's very struck by how much older the parents look mm-hmm. um, that that's kind of what you know time will do obviously but her being away from them being at school and them obviously not being close enough where they could visit a lot or she could go home a lot since they moved and everything um, just that sudden not a sudden realization but just a reminder that everyone's getting old you're getting older you know you're going to school you're getting older you're going to be graduating in a couple of years but your parents are also getting older um, and just realizing that can be hard yeah I like the just the juxtaposition of most mystery books when someone's trying to solve something it's usually enough of a time period that either nobody's still alive you only kind of have the rumors to go on but at the oldest Jeremy's in his 40s like he's still around and kicking just fine they even make a comment that Jeremy's dad isn't as old as as the Pratt's yeah. Um, yeah. He said he's probably in his 50s. So yeah. Maybe 30s or so. Probably. Yeah. Um, which just kind of hit me a certain way. I don't know. It was just like the 90s felt like such a different period of this book that they could have been talking about the 1890s even. Mm. And then it's like, no, Jeremy's still alive and is relatively speaking fine. Doesn't yeah. have anything to do with this. Um has moved on in his life. We have no idea what he's doing other than his dad's really proud. Um, but there, all the players are still on the board. Right. Lisa's still alive even. So, um, and I guess we can assume Sarah Jane is, I don't know if she's actually mentioned uh, in the last section. Everybody else I know. Cause I made note. I thought Stephanie Sarah came I, back. I thought Sarah Jane had moved somewhere, but I'm not sure. Okay. Quite possibly, I could have just missed it. Um, but this mystery and dread and everything doesn't really have a resolution other than, like, to let you know everybody's okay. Yeah. Or alive. Uh, not the same thing, I'm aware. <laughs> <laughs> um I will say I was a little sad when um, James is describing to Abby about how when he goes to try to find Jeremy and he's talking to, to Jeremy's dad that he clearly lives alone. It's like, oh, I yeah. didn't work out with Shauna. No, yeah. Or I was worried she had passed away too or something. Right. But it just, it, we find out that it hadn't worked out. And that's a little sad. That was a little sad. But I am glad they're still apparently friends. Yeah. So. Right. There's no like, Darnell doesn't give us any real resolution, but he also makes it clear that th- there's no 
there's no real resolution in life. Like, there's no things don't wrap up the way they do in stories. Like, the story kind of ends and you just kind of keep going because mm-hmm. that's just a little bit. Like, that's just this is just a little part of your life, and and it's just the prats who come back and kind of like dig this old thing up. And instead right. of and instead of resurrecting all these ghosts, Jeremy's just like, just leave it alone. Like, and not in a mean way. Like he's just like, you know what, just don't bother people. And it's not because these are Californians who don't get that in the Midwest, you kind of just leave it alone. Yeah. Like it's weird that you would bother a stranger. Like it's not it's not that it's none of your business, it's just it's not your life. Like, what are you even doing? I do like all the description of small town Iowa people, you know, mm-hmm. um, the discussion of the family getting together towards the beginning and how they go through the rundown of what everybody's doing. Mm-hmm. I was like sitting in my grandmother's kitchen. <laughs> it was <laughs> like, I feel every bit of this. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the old farmer who's come in to uh, ask questions about his equipment. And really he just wants to talk about his equipment with someone. Yeah. And I, I loved it. I love this look at small town life that is almost like it's supposed to be presented in a negative way, but really it's endearing. Um, and maybe that's just me. <laughs> no, I, I, totally, know, I, I totally agree because I think, I think one of Darniel's other strengths as a writer of music or whatever is that he genuinely loves his characters. Mm-hmm. Um I, Darnielle approaches I think that's when you were saying like this book reminded you a lot of sort of postmodern books that sort of like go off in different directions and are kind of experimental I think what separates his stuff is that Darnielle is very kind he's a very yes. he's an extremely if you follow his Twitter if you listen like first of all on Twitter he's hilarious um, <laughs> if you listen to interviews with him he's a very gentle man and he's very sweet he's very kind very giving and uh, generous, like just in his attention and in his in his respect for the for people in the world. And uh, I think in his I think in this book in particular, he believes that everything that these characters are doing, whether it's uh, Lisa looking for her mom, whether it's Jeremy and his father watching movies together, whether it's Sarah Jane interacting with Ezra, or even even a even the 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 guy who runs the business where Jeremy eventually gets the job, I can't think of his name. Uh, he goes into like the brief history of that company. Oh yeah, like all of this is done for love, of one degree to one degree or another. There's there's this intense love from all the characters, um, and this desire for connection, but in a very in a very safe way. Mm-hmm. And um, I pulled up one of my favorite songs. By the, by, by, by the Mountain Goats is from uh, his album, The Sunset Tree, which is his, the album he wrote. Uh, it's his, fir- his, his really his only autobiographical album. It's the album he wrote after his stepfather died. His stepfather was a horrifically abusive man. And he wrote, and he wrote, this, he wrote this album, which is his sort of like reflection on his, his adolescence. And he wrote a song in it, though, called Love, Love, Love. And the bridge of it, and to me, the bridge of the song is permeates all of Darnielle's writings, whether it's autobiographical, uh, fictional, whatever, including this book, which is the bridge is love is going to lead you by the hand into a white and soundless place. Now we see things as in a mirror dimly. Then we shall see each other face to face. And wow. I, 
I think that's kind of a philosophy behind this book, which is we are we're being taken by one, the things that we love and the things that that are our desire for connection into some pretty into some pretty dark areas of the world. Um, and it's not because we are malevolent creatures. It's because we're desperate creatures and we 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 desperately want to hold on to things. We want to love people. We want to we want to have uh, relationships and closeness, but we're also very scared. And when you when you're drawn to another person by this this violent love, uh, you you are taken into their dark places, but you're also given the chance to see who the other person really is. And it's not always a beautiful thing you're seeing, but it forms a bond that is kind of the, the this this universal bond that connects that connects everyone. This desire for 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 love and closeness and. I think that he's able to take this love and show the horror of it, which is that, and it's and it's the thing that keeps reverberating with me about this book, which is that he's he's he dives into the genre of horror, and then he just keeps going deeper, and he's like, it's not the it's not the mystery, it's not the violence, it's not the mysterious videotapes, it's not the blood on the highway, it's not, it's not the hoods over the head or the writhing under a tarp. It's, it the horror of 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 what's going on in this novel is that time continues to move on, and it pulls us all apart, and we can't escape the inevitability of time. We can't escape the inevitability of distance. We can't escape the inevitability of our age and death and loneliness. Um, but that's okay because we're all going through it and we're able to hold on to each other. If we just let each other, if we just give each other something to hold on to, we can get through this whole thing as horrific as it is. And I think that that's, that's where the beauty and the compassion comes in, but also the fact that, yeah, it's a scary book because he keeps showing us the fact that we're all going through what all these characters are going through. That's my rant. <laughs> <laughs> no, I really don't know how to go from there because anything else is going to sound so <laughs> superficial. No, I, I think that is a great way of reading this book. Uh, the reviews are quite polarizing. I don't know if you guys have looked at them. Oh, very. Um, especially on Goodreads. Um, oh, oh Goodreads, actually... yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like Goodreads from the standpoint of if people write reviews, it's usually, if it's just people giving stars, it, it's worthless. But, like, you can usually tell where people are coming from on this. So I was a little apprehensive picking it up. Um because so many people are like, this book is incredibly disappointing. Mm -hmm. And then reading it, I'm like, no, it's just not for you. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, I think it resonated with each of us very well, uh, which is, again, okay. If it didn't, if it does, great. Um, <laughs> I... I... <laughs> I'm trying not to get on my soapbox of like, it's okay to not like things. <laughs> I'll have that soapbox when we have another book that I don't like. Um. <laughs> one thing I loved about this book is you can turn to almost, well, there's many things I love. But one thing I love is you can turn to almost any paragraph 
any paragraph in this book it contains something that's almost going to bring me to tears. It's just the way he describes things so gently. Uh, he describes <laughs> the bed knobs and broomsticks movie poster. Oh, God, yes. In a way, all he does is describe it in a way that made me like have to sort of stand up for a second and be like, all right. <laughs> he just described what this movie poster looked like, but it was done so perfectly that I felt like I was in 1970s small town looking at a movie poster at an old movie house as a child with my mom. Like it was just, he, it's very evocative. And I, his, the way he plays with pop culture, because it's such a big part of this book, like he mm. names movies and shows and the way he plays with it, I'm like, and this is, this. I don't want this to sound trite, but this is the book that Ready Player One wishes it was. <laughs> In the, I agree. In the sense that, to me, in the sense that he makes use of pop culture in a very meaningful way and not a show-offy way. But if you know the movie She's All That and and you and you get to the point where, like, it's here's the point in that movie where the weird thing happens, yeah. it evokes a feeling. He <laughs> uses it in the way that, like, Christian writers use knowledge of Christianity – in their books, where if you know this world, if you know these things, it's going to draw you deeper into this, into the, into the mystery of this novel. I think that is a really good way of putting it. I kept thinking that this is what Lost wanted to be. Huh. And from the standpoint of, here's a mystery, here's a look into something, you don't need the answers. Um, but it is very much an, a good homage to the 90s. It made me almost miss the 90s. I, <laughs> I've never felt that way, especially as I look at the clothes going, please don't come back. Um, and to feel the 70s. Um, oh, I'm embracing it, just not the velvet part of it yet. <laughs> but it did. It's This was not a book that I could do in one sitting if I wanted to. Mm. Uh, and most of my reading's done on the subway in the morning and the afternoons, and then occasionally at home. But it was not a book that I could read on the subway in the mornings, mm-hmm. um, unless I wanted to read the same paragraph four times. It is very much a you have to be in the right headspace to fall into this world. Yeah. Um, I really liked. Uh... I was just say I did really like that it definitely you know took me back to the 90s and there were little things that even though I didn't grow up in a small town little things that just reminded me of my childhood kind of um, like when Jeremy and his dad would watch movies uh, when my dad would pick me and my brother up on the weekends we'd usually stop at Blockbuster yeah and Alex and I would yes. pick out a movie I don't know if my dad actually always watched them with us I remember him falling asleep when I put on Moulin Rouge he fell asleep twice <laughs> <laughs> not for um, him got it I'm sure She's All That was one of the ones that I rented at some point, and I would disagree with Jeremy saying that it was a dud. <laughs> Teenage <laughs> Me loved that movie. Um, it's on Hulu. Also... I just watched it recently again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was on TV, and I left it on. It's like, oh, I forgot Paul Walker was in this. Oh, God, yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and then one of my favorite parts was it was after Jeremy and Steve and Shauna had watched that movie and the clip came up and Steve thought it was his deceased wife. Um, and Shauna's trying to kind of make everyone feel better. 
and Jeremy has this thought of, I like you, and I hope you take care of my dad. Um, I just thought that was really sweet and something mm. I could kind of relate to. Uh, my parents broke up when I was a baby, and my stepdad and my mom got together when I was like two. So that's all I remember on that side. Mm-hmm. And then my dad and my stepmom, I don't remember how old I was when they started dating, but I was 11 when they got married. And I always loved her. She was always great. She was always great with me and Alex, and she clearly made my dad happy. And then just as I got older, just being like, yeah, she was, she's the perfect person for him, you know? <laughs> um, and just, you know wanting them to be happy and my mom and my stepdad too but that was just but kind that's of an already an ingrained yeah. yeah yeah relationship there so yeah I'm going through that's my, my mom and stepdad divorced a couple years ago but he'd been around for 20 years so it's you know more or less uh my father figure mm-hmm. and you know but at the same time like he didn't have to introduce me to his new girlfriend but he did and she didn't have to accept anything other than I'm a kid from his previous marriage that's not even technically his blood, but like, you know, I, I talked to her more than I talked to most people on my dad's side of the family. Mm. So like the whole Shauna scene was mm. very, very happy for a very positive outlook of like, Jeremy's not okay with his dad dating at first, but Shauna's a good person. And yeah. His acceptance of it was very quiet and and made me so happy because his dad has every right to move on. And I'm so tired of the trope. Yeah, I'm tired of evil step-parent tropes and I'm tired of you must hold on to the memory. Not not to say you shouldn't mourn, but... I've always hated those tropes. I was never, (laughs) ever a kid that wanted my parents to get back together. No, me neither. (laughs) Me neither. I think just because... Well, obviously, my dad and my, my stepdad and my mom were together for, you know, right. two Matt married when I was four. So, um, and I had met a couple of my dad's girlfriends before my stepmom, but it was clear that they were happiest not together. And then if they had stayed together, I knew at a very young age, if they had stayed together, I wouldn't have my brothers and my sister. Right. You know, so yeah. I hate those trips of the evil <laughs> step parents. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't, I didn't, I mean, my parents are still together as far as i know okay uh, congratulations but uh that's awesome i'm i'm roughly jeremy's age okay uh, i was i guess i was 22 i guess in 1999 so i was you know like roughly roughly that age and this book did evoke a lot of that sense of there's a video store uh culture that doesn't exist anymore um interactions with people uh the way you the way a video store felt and smelled and your life, if you were a movie person like I was, like your life just sort of centered on this, on this little like mecca uh, that just has just fallen away, of course, in 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 the last 10, 15 years. Um, but yeah, this book made me nostalgic for for that period of the 90s. That even though I didn't grow up again in a small town, it made me it made me miss that there's well, I guess and I guess this is kind of one of the themes of the book. There are things in the world that fall away and won't come back. Uh, and I am easily affected by that notion. Uh, uh, but yeah, and it's, it's funny cause this book straddles for me personally, it, it, it sits on this fence now where my life is, uh, I look back on my childhood and, but now I'm also looking forward to my like the rest of my life like I have a kid who's about to go off to college in just a, a couple of years in a year and 
I there's this paragraph. So one of the most gripping parts of the book for me is the journal left by Steve, uh, Jeremy's father. He describes Jeremy's birth in it. And at the end of his entry, he says, I watch what's left of my life like a security guard on the night shift, checking the locks when I know I don't need to, pacing the perimeter of some place nobody's going to break into, except that you never know, something could happen. So you keep watch. They don't pay security guards just because there are a few bodies short on the payroll. And that, in addition to about 75 other parts of the book, <laughs> makes me stop and catch my breath because I feel myself kind of towing that part of my life where I'm going to be looking back a lot and just making sure that everyone I love is safe. And I think that this book is for a man who's only in his 50s. John Darnielle's not old. He sure does have like a finger on like the sense of what it's like to reach that part in your life. Right. Um, and I think, again, that comes from his extreme empathy and the fact that he's a great observer of human nature and that he's so kind and just loves what everyone puts out into the world. But, yeah, it's uh, I, I don't know if you could tell, but this book has affected me greatly. <laughs> And that is amazing when you can find books that do that. Yeah. I am all down for that. Um, I am curious. I think it's going to be one that I add to like try again every 10 years. Mm. Um, Maybe not that far, but I I have a few of those. Um, No Country for Old Men is actually another one of those. It's coming up where it's been about 10 years since I've read it. I want to give it another shot. And I love that book. But just... I can see this book having a new angle for different parts of life. Like 10 years ago, I probably would have hated this book. Mm. Mm -hmm. Um, Even though I was starting to love other books like this, I could see myself being like, no, this is, this is not for me as where now I'm like, no, this is every bit of this is amazing. And I don't need the push of a resolution or the promise of a re- resolution to to get me to finish a book. Yeah. Because um, and and I think especially with some of the reviews, that's where the dislike for this falls. Um, what about you, Stephanie? <laughs> I thinking about it. I think ten years ago, I probably wouldn't have liked it either. I it wouldn't have been something that I would have really grasped onto. Um, See, I would have been 20. Yeah, I probably would have. <laughs> <laughs> so I would be interested to see what I think of it five years from now, ten years from now. Um, I don't see myself having kids, but I could see myself when my, my younger siblings are approaching college and everything and that next crazy phase, um, how it will affect me then. Yeah. It's yeah, it's bonkers. So my 18-year-old yeah. brother, is first, he's in his first year in college, mm-hmm. and then I have a 13-year-old brother. So when you get there, let me know because I... Mine are 13, too, so we'll probably be... We'll be going through it together, yeah. We'll have a good year where we're crying together. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> it's just insane. I remember when you were born. What is exactly? <laughs> and while I am not their mother, but I babysat quite a bit. And yes. It's yeah. annoys the shit out of both of them when I'm like, I'm just so sad. <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, 
Although maybe they'll come to you for advice. Like uh, the 18 year old came to me for, you know, for drinking advice. (laughs) (laughs) Things I know he wouldn't have asked her parents. So (laughs) Uh, mine are very different. uh, I've probably told you this story, Stephanie, but my brother decided he wanted to see it last year and asked my mother if he could see it. And she was, you know, text me. And and then I have my sister, Anna, who's 26. She'll be 27 this year. Um, And I was like, "Um, considering that at 13, you wouldn't let me watch all PG-13 movies? No. Oh. (laughs) I'm against this. And she's like, that is the most ridiculous thing. I never would have done that. And I was like, I'm sorry. You wouldn't let me watch Bring It On. Fine. (laughs) Fine. If you want to let our brother go see the scary movie, you do that. And uh, Alex's parents get, you know, with the next kid and the next kid and the next kid. Oh, yeah. So do. (laughs) And then uh, later my mom's like, it's a little ridiculous that he's asking me this. There's no parental locks on Netflix. And it was just like this moment of all of us realizing, like, my brother doesn't get into trouble. (laughs) He just doesn't do anything that's going to cause that kind of trouble. And so I don't know. If he'll ever come to me for drinking advice, it's more math advice than anything else. Gotcha. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, as where I'm fairly certain his twin sister's been watching rated R movies for as long as she's learned to work Netflix. So that's going to be the like the, they're both good kids. They are. Yes. Um, the 13 year old likes to think he's grown. You know. <laughs> so I don't know if Such he'll actually come age. for advice or just after the fact. Like, yeah, I did X, Y, and Z and keg stands and all this stuff. You know. <laughs> Uh, you do you only have two kids, Phil, or is it? Yes, I have a uh, okay. I have a sixteen year old and a seven year old. Okay, so you still got a few more years. Yeah, I do. I do. Um, <laughs> we'll see what happens. <laughs> we'll see how it all turns out. <laughs> um, is there anything else we want to touch on in this book before we move on to our next parts? No. <laughs> <laughs> we got. Yeah, just looking at my notes. I mean, there's Same a here. million things. I could keep talking about it, it all really day. Is. but yes. I mean. the, there's. I, I was actually looking at, uh, I don't know, Stephanie, I know I just saw you got on Goodreads. You're in for such a surprise. Um, but if you sync up your Amazon Kindle account with Goodreads and you mm-hmm. highlight things, it'll note, notate them on Goodreads. I, I saw that on your account. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, I turned mine on for this one earlier. Um, and I was like, I could pick any of these quotes to just sit down and be like, we're going to talk about this one for the next hour. Yeah. Um, I could see this book being taught in class. Mm. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You need to hook up your Amazon because it it comes in handy. (laughs) I think I've had my Goodreads forever. And then today I went on a mass, like I'm adding everything that I've read so far this year and I'm putting stuff in my, you know, to be read list on here so I can track it digitally instead of by hand. Um, so I don't actually know all the little fun things you can do like that. So I will be looking into that. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so as we do with every book, uh, we assign a drink that we associate with this book. Phil is our guest. You have the honor. Um, should I just go? Yeah, go right ahead. (laughs) It's such a weird, it's, it's, it's an odd question. Uh, I don't have a particular drink that makes me like feel lonely um, <laughs> <laughs> it could be anything it could be a drink from the book yeah um geez uh it's such a tough question um i'm not good at association uh <laughs> oh man a drink that 
I mean, because I didn't drink anything while I was reading this. I actually <laughs> listened to por- por- uh, a, a good portion of this book uh, the first time. Darniel reads it, and uh, uh, I listened to it at the gym. It's a good. It's a good. It's a good gym book, I guess. <laughs> I'm actually a really big fan of uh, of reading and working out. It's one of the few things that I audiobooks. That is what they're for. <laughs> Running with an audiobook is one of the like most satisfying things uh, in my life. Um, so I guess I can I... give you a cheat one if you want. What? Yeah, I they have do. One in mind. They do discuss the beast quite a bit. <laughs> uh, the Milwaukee Brew. I love that they call it the beast. Do you want a beast? Yeah, <laughs> I love that. But in a very sad way. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Like he, and then later on when it comes back where he's like he actually called it a beast yeah. I was like I was like you don't make fun of that that no, is his right <laughs> I've never had a Milwaukee brew so I don't know I honestly I don't, don't either. either yeah uh, I, I feel like I've I've had like bush light and stuff like that so I was putting it there thinking it probably tastes like that I like w- a bush light I was at a party uh not terribly long ago uh and they had, uh, I guess, what is the one that became America's beer? Budweiser? Is that the one? I, like, for a yeah. while, the beer changed its name to, like, America the beer or whatever. Uh, oh, yeah. They had the campaigns and stuff. And I he, remember those. And he had it there. And I was like, you know what? I've never had a Budweiser. And he was like, what? I was like, I've never had a cheap beer. I've only ever had <laughs> beer that's made in, like, brew. I didn't start drinking until I was an adult. And I live in, like the land of a thousand brew houses. Uh, So I've never had beer that wasn't made by people who were like trying to make good beer. And he was like, well, you've got to, you've got to drink this beer now. And he actually got a video of me drinking my first cheap beer. And when I was like 30, what, nine, 38. (laughs) And he was like, what did you think? And I was like, it literally tastes like nothing. I can see how like, High school students get really wasted on this because it doesn't taste like anything. Yes. My husband has a more, or I have a more discerning taste now, but I was drinking, I went from drinking like hard alcohol in college and Bud Light, which I stand by Bud Light. I will drink a Bud Light <laughs> in the summer. It's refreshing from a can or on, in dra- on draft. Um, Bud Light and but when my hus- huh? That's how I do it. Bud Light and Oh, spray. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> When my husband would say stuff tastes like water, I was like, what do you mean? It doesn't taste like water. I get it now. Oh. <laughs> now that I've had other other types of beer. <laughs> I think we did uh, Coronas for the last um, Fast and Furious movie that came out. Oh, the yeah. You bring beer into the theater. So, of course, we had to do Corona. And I was like, this does taste like nothing. <laughs> <laughs> That's how they get you, though. Yeah. It is. Um, oh my god! So you're yeah. welcome to take that one. I think that we're I think I will, come up with another. I think there is something to say be said about about a drink that is there entirely for comfort and because it's habit and it's a thing between you and a and a, and a close person in your life. And darn it, I, I like the story where like the, their mom accidentally bought like the wrong kind of beer once and it sat undrunk oh, yeah. in the fridge for a yeah. year. Because uh, there's something that's also like very sad about that story, and also that very sad about the memory of that like springing up. Like it's just again layers upon layers. Everything in this book makes me want to like cry or go hug my children. <laughs> I did cry in this book. Um, 
I cry in a lot of books, though, so I, yeah. it didn't strike me as anything unusual. But I will also second that I listened to some of this on audiobook because I happened to grab both. Um, his voice is so soothing mm-hmm. and just perfect. Yeah. Yeah. It's like being – but uh, as you – I think you and I talked or, me, or briefly mentioned that, like, uh, there's – it's almost impossible to pay attention to at times because it's so soothing. Oh, yeah. Like, you don't realize you're missing a lot? Uh, yes. I think I did it most, like, three chapters by <laughs> audiobook. And at least one of those I went back and read again. Because not only that, it's just disjointed enough that you're like, okay, what just happened? Yeah. <laughs> what just jumped? Um, and then the music at the end is a little jarring. I listened to the last chapter oh, yeah. uh, on audiobook as well. And... Um, I mean, it's really nice and great and everything, but it was like, this is a little too peppy. <laughs> well, maybe he wanted you to, to realize it all ends on an up note. Sure. Yeah. It's just like, this is too peppy. I finished it uh, during the winter storm Friday that nobody salted for. So I was like, I'm already in a dark, quiet place, and this is peppy. Phil, <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> so what will you be reading next? Ooh. I mean, uh, obviously, a number of Berenstain Bears <laughs> chapter books. That's my life. Um, uh, and a bunch of Beverly Cleary novels, because that's also my life. But uh, I, I still have The Vore, which is a book that I've had on my reading list. And I have a copy sitting on my desk at home uh, that I have just been picking at and picking at the beginning. I, I've read the first chapter like a million times. Uh, but it's a Brian Catling novel. It is a very strange, dark fantasy. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, it, Ian Sinclair is the person who's like, you've got to read this book. And like Alan Moore is like, you got to read this book. And Jeff Vandermeer is like, you got to read this book. And so like oh, that's heavy. That's you're, heavy. with these like, authors who are like specialized in incredibly dense, weird fiction uh, to be like, oh, this is the one. This is the big one. Uh, I think the Vore is going to be my next, like, I'm just going to, I'm going to sit and I'm just going to absorb this novel. <laughs> That's V-O-R-R-H. Okay. Thank you. Cause I definitely wasn't sure how to spell that. <laughs> now, to look it up. <laughs> um, Stephanie, I don't think we talked about this last episode, but what are you going to be reading next? Um, I'm actually going to kind of be reading like a cookbook. <laughs> okay. Um, when we did that, the 24 and 48 readathon, I had read um, My Soul Looks Back, a memoir by Jessica B. Harris. She's a culinary historian. Um, that particular book was about her time in the 70s, um, kind of her experiences eating, drinking, dancing through the 70s with other like black elites like Nina Simone, James Baldwin, mm. Maya Angelou. Um, Very cool. So in it, she mentioned a book that she wrote called High on the Hog. It's basically following food from Africa through the slave trade to the States. Oh, wow. Um, And then she also mentioned another book, uh, uh, Grand Cocina Latina, I think it is. Yes, by Maricel Precia. So I'm half black and half proven. I was like, I need both of these books in my life. (laughs) That's (laughs) Um, perfect. Yeah. So I bought them, and I actually made – 
a Peruvian dessert alfajores for my dad's birthday on Friday. Oh, how they cool. They came out pretty good. I was feeling pretty proud. That's awesome. Um, yeah. I think I may have gone a little overboard with the powdered sugar at the end, but it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, but both of them talk about like the history of there's more, um, there's less recipes in High on the Hog, and that's more of the history. Uh, but there are some recipes in the back, and then Grand Cocina Latina is very much a cookbook, but with history, you know, and stories in, in intertwined. So I had this goal. I want to make all of the Peruvian desserts or all of the Peruvian foods from that. So wow, (laughs) see how long that takes and how that goes. Ever, (laughs) ever need a taste tester to give me a call. (laughs) Okay. I've technically made three. Well, because the alfa it's like a cookie with a filling. So I made the cookie and then there were two options for the filling. So one of them, I was like, oh yeah, I'll do that one. So I was making it and it's, um, it was a lot of sugar and something else and like an orange peel or a lemon peel. And as it's cooking, like this doesn't smell right. Like it, it smells fine, but it doesn't look like what I know alfa look like. So then I realized that the other filling was the right one. So nice. I made both fillings. Uh. So that's two off the list. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> One ended up in the trash, but <laughs> what are you gonna I'm do? Glad it, I'm glad it turned out well. Yeah. yeah so <laughs> be with cookbooks. So how about you, Megan? What are you reading? Um, I, I always have a few that I'm going on, but I think the next one that I'm picking up is Mary's Monster by Lita Judge. Um, it's I couldn't even tell you which podcast I found this on, but it is like a weird biography of Mary Shelley that's also kind of a graphic novel that also has poetry. And um, it just recently came out, like, in the past six months, I think. Um, And it's... I really wish I could remember who was talking about it, but I picked it up because I love Mary Shelley and the thought of, like, learning anything more about her. I mean, I did... I studied her in college and everything, um, but the added pictures and uh poetry was just uh interesting enough so i got it from the library three weeks ago and in true fashion haven't read it yet but (laughs) um we'll be reading it this week so that i can finally return it um and probably actually buy a copy of it because it is absolutely beautiful on the cover just to kind of give that's what it looks like so um yeah we'll see how it is should we go into what we're reading next Sure. plugs so we have a very special guest next not that all of our guests aren't <laughs> special but <laughs> that sounded like such a slam i'm sorry <laughs> and it's only because stephanie tell us who our next guest is <laughs> it's gonna be my husband chris hayes and it's special because it's taken a lot of convincing <laughs> a lot of yes. talking a lot of <laughs> nagging you know <laughs> This is why it's it's so special is because it's like we're begging him to come on right. almost. The effort involved in getting him to agree. <laughs> uh, and what book has he picked? He's picked Pet Cemetery by Stephen King. Ooh. Yes. So, yeah. Which um, I have not read. I've seen the movie of years ago, but I have not read that. So I don't think I've actually even seen the movie. Wow. Oh, no. I am, <laughs> I I'm going into this blind other than knowing it's okay. Stephen King and that there's not an audio book of it. Just yeah. my rant earlier this week. <laughs> oh, yeah. I saw that rant. Yeah. <laughs> it's just this book is older than me. <laughs> I don't get it. Um and yes, every single person that I've ranted to about this has gone, but Audible has something. Yes, look at the dates. 
it comes out at the end of this month of all things. Right. So. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> that is uh, probably the longest book we've ever tried to tackle for a podcast. So. Yeah. He's already started reading it. <laughs> yes. I picked it up. <laughs> oh, I gotta um, go get it. Yesterday. It's a hefty tome. I think it's one of the first Stephen King books I ever read. Okay. Yeah. When I was in like junior high. Horribly inappropriate. (laughs) I am curious because I've heard it's one of those that a lot of people read young. Mm -hmm. And then if you read it as adult, particularly after having kids. Yeah. It is a much (laughs) horrific book. It was horrific to me when I was young. And <laughs> I was like, oh, no. So, yeah, no, it, it, yeah. Oh, that's exciting, though, to get to read it for the first time. It's the book he yeah. threw in the trash because he thought it was too upsetting and dark. Oh, great. Uh-oh. And his wife fished it out and was like, you've got to finish writing this book. And he was like, okay. <laughs> Wonderful. There's going to be lots oh, of boy. ranting of me of Stephen King for the next few weeks. There might be. And I I'm, ex- I'm going to try I'm excited to hear it. Anywhere. Um, Phil, thank you for coming on. Thank you for blast. having me. Yes, thank you. Um, this was a fantastic book choice in that we expected something horrific and instead got something so beautifully literary and it can't be classified. Um, so thank you again. You're welcome. Um, where can people find you if they want to hear more of your uh, dulcet tones? <laughs> My newly redulceted tones. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the last episode of a show I did, I sounded like a horrific Muppet. Um, uh, but no, I have I have three podcasts. Uh, one is called Deep in Bear Country, a Berenstain Bear cast, in which I've been covering all the books in the Berenstain Bear series. I've been going at that for almost three years now. Uh, I just bring on, it's just me. I bring on guests. I have a podcast I do with uh, John McCoy called Click It Cast. It's a Beverly Cleary podcast where we're going through all the works of Beverly Cleary and analyzing them as only uh, inappropriately aged men can can analyze books written for children. And uh, I do a podcast with my teenager, Ollie, uh, called It's Del Toro Time. We went through all the movies of Guillermo del Toro. And now we are going through all of the movies on his Ecstasy of Influence list, which is over 100 movies that he says influenced him the most as a filmmaker. And we are currently in deep in the 1940s. So we're going through those chronologically. <laughs> I keep meaning to ask, do you bring your youngest on to talk about Beverly Cleary books? Uh, not Beverly Cleary, but I have had Mitzi on uh, Deep in Bear Country several times. Okay. Yes. Okay. So. Very cool. Um, Stephanie, where can people find you? Do you have anything to plug yet? Nothing <laughs> yet, but um, there may be a different answer next time. We're I hoping Chris catches the bug. Yeah. <laughs> Has a couple podcast ideas, um, although I did tell him, because him and our good friend are want to do one, so I said, you know, when you come on, we ask, where can people find you? So. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, Be ready. <laughs> yeah. They've been working on that, too, so oh, hopefully awesome. we'll have different answers next time. <laughs> That'll be great. Yeah. Um, as for me, I host two other podcasts, Fabulous Retellings, which has started our Bluebeard season. Uh, It is our final season in this format, so we decided to have a lot of fun in our book and movie choices. Um, So go check that out. Um, I don't know where this will come out, but at some point, uh, the idea came from my my co-host's sister, and now she wants to come on to do a five-minute talk on how Fifty Shades of Grey is Bluebeard. (laughs) So this is our current (laughs) of, do we let her do this or not? 
And my other <laughs> podcast is a handbook for handbook mortal for mortals, where we go chapter by chapter of the 2017 controversial book Handbook for Mortals and try to decide if it should have been a New York Times number one bestseller. Um, no, it should not have been. So. <laughs> <laughs> As for this podcast, you can find us on judgingbookcovers.com. Uh, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at JBC Podcast. Uh, as always, you can email us at judgingcoverspodcast at gmail.com. We'll be back in two weeks for Pet Cemetery by Stephen King with uh, your wonderful husband. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, continue to support your libraries. And thank you again. <laughs>